Hi everyone and welcome back to Discerning Consciousness podcast. I'm your host Ant and you join me today for episode number 120 which is part one of a two-parter in which I pose the question are we living in a post-truth world? So thank you all for uh, joining me for today's episode. It's, um, it's good to be back. So um, I think you'll agree that obviously this is a question that's at the forefront of uh, many of our minds right now because um, the world has become uh, increasingly since COVID, of course, such, um, such a strange place. And it does appear as if we're living more and more in a kind of 1984-esque Orwellian world where um, truth is being deliberately outlawed uh, in, right in front of our eyes. And of course, perhaps when you're out and about, uh, we can see more and more in people's eyes this sort of despondency or despair. It looks like some people have given up. They, you know, they can't make sense of the world because perhaps, uh, unlike us, you know, they don't have a you know, some concept of, of what's going on behind the lies that the mainstream uh, are peddling. And yeah, holding that burden of, li- burden, sorry, of lies um, within our physical body, um, it does bear down on us more and more. And I think we can see it, you know, just in people's, um, the way they walk, the way they talk, their gait and things like this. And it is, it is quite a, um, yeah, it is quite a, a, tru- a troubling uh, disturbing truth should I say to see so um, in this episode um, what I'm going to cover is I'm just going to look at um, some key uh, five main points really I'm going to start by looking at this idea of you have to suffer for the truth you may well have heard of this axiom or you may not I'm just going to talk about what it means then I'm going to look at uh, dreaded identity politics and this idea of pseudo truth or fake truth if you prefer and the uh, notion of my truth versus your truth and circular arguments and the like. I'm also going to look at uh, quite an interesting phenomena of how people confuse being nice with goodness or a sense of, you know, we assume that people who are nice are living in truth. And I'm going to explain um, why that isn't the case. I'm also, lastly in this episode, I'm just going to look at um, some of the main characteristics of people who uh, value truth. And, um, yeah, what marks them out uh, against people who don't seem to value truth in this modern world? Because, um, yeah, I think you'll probably agree we're seeing evidence all around us, really, in the public realm, in institutions, education system, the media, the arts, the world of fashion, music, and even in our own interpersonal relationships lies seeping into uh, all corners of life and of course with the degradation of uh, contemporary culture um, banality is celebrated and even venerated and everything appears to be inverted and upside down truth is fiction and fiction is is truth and as I said at the beginning it is really really strange it feels as if we are living in a in a science fiction dystopian dystopia sorry movie and uh, it's very difficult for intelligent sensitive people because it seems so uh, so inexplicable to live in a world where basically truth has become anything that you want it to be <laughs> and of course that's um, sort of a byproduct of 
living in a world in which uh, moral relativism is celebrated in educational institutions, colleges and, uh, and universities, of course, and pushed through uh, the mainstream media. But this idea of um, you have to suffer for the truth, really it plays on, it plays on our fears and insecurities and keeps billions of people within the restrictive confines of the matrix control system. And essentially it's a confidence trick that society plays upon us and just as important it's uh, key to point out that we play upon ourselves and others. And either you play along or you live a life of truth and integrity and you face the, the pain of social isolation, shame and uh, maybe even a destruction of your professional or personal career as we've seen during COVID with certain brave uh, doctors and medical profession professionals who've come out and spoken the truth. Yeah, that can be, uh, that can be really quite concerning because as a society and as a culture, what we tend to prefer are comforting illusions and why anyone who proposes uh, a narrative uh, different from accepted mainstream versions of truth is by definition, of course, we know now, they're characterised as a conspiracy theorist because they uh, constitute a threat to society or a threat to these sort of comforting illusions, um, comforting illusions that we, we live by, really. And I think one of the main comforting illusions that even those of us who are striving towards greater levels of consciousness we fall into is this idea of just playing small um, and this sort of uh, notion or fact or truth pushed by the mainstream, which is the idea of um, that we're just a cosmic accident, we've just evolved from this pond slime and our next evolutionary step, step is to is to uh, be shrouded in a sort of a titanium <laughs> in a titanium suit and have our consciousness um, uploaded to some sort of external cloud or high, hard drive in, in, in the sky and that there is no higher purpose or meaning, there is no God, there's no such thing as synchronicity and you know we're just a cosmic accident, accident sorry, spinning on a, on a planet in an infinite universe and of course, I think that is the reason why that's a comforting illusion is because billions of people believe that. And then they kind of probably conclude to themselves, well, if I'm just a cosmic accident and I have no real power beyond, you know, my material wants and desires or um, satisfying those. And that's all that life is about, you know, just a just a merry-go-round and just a playground. And we're just here to... Uh, to satisfy our material desires, then what, what, what's the point? We might as well live in a, a world of delusion and, and comforting and comforting lies, really. Um, it's interesting to think um, there's a high-profile public figure who really did have to suffer for the truth. Uh, of course, you've all heard of David Icke. Now, he, in the late 80s, he, um, he did a very famous interview with Terry Wogan. And for those of you who aren't in the UK, Terry Wogan is a very famous, or was when he was alive. It's like a TV host, a bit like a Jay Leno kind of thing, character. 
So for many years, he had his own talk show called The Wogan Show, and he interviewed high-profile people. So David Icke uh, went on went on uh, his show, and uh, the media claimed that he said he was the son of God, but he wasn't. He, he wasn't claiming that. If you actually listen to it, I think if you put type in David Icke interview with Terry Wogan on YouTube, it, it brings up, I think it was in the late 80s, it brings up the interview. And subsequently, David Icke was shamed and ridiculed, and he was um, a laughing stock of the country. Uh, because uh, until a few years before, he was a highly respected sports journalist. And, you know, to, to make such claims was he must be a kind of crazy, crazy maniac to be to, to be claiming that he uh, is somehow a manifestation of the second coming, which if you go and listen to the interview, he never said he was actually what he was going through uh, was a very profound um, spiritual awakening. And of course, as we know, whatever you think of David Icke, a lot of what he uh, has written about in his dozens of books since the early early 1990s uh, have come to pass, certainly with the, the whole COVID um, psyop. So yeah, he had to, in a very visceral, in a very public way, he had to, he had to suffer for his own personal truth. And David Icke is also an example of the way in which you know, it's sort of like an alchemical fire of purification. That's also what often happens when we have to, when we go through a process of suffering for the truth. Um, everything that, uh, you know, everything that we thought we were, all of our delusions has to be, they have to be burnt away to dust before the new authentic self can be born. And I'm sure we've all got our own examples of having to suffer for the truth. Um, perhaps you know in the last two and a half years since the covid psyop you've you've experienced experienced that yourself maybe um you've had uh, certain friends or family members distance themselves or even shunned you completely because of your uh, your perspective on covid and the fact you that you're um, brave enough to share your take that runs uh, counter to the mainstream lies and complete nonsense. Perhaps that was too much for them to bear. And we know that, unfortunately, you know, uh, because it's become an article of faith for many people, the mainstream perspective, it has um, meant that marriages and, rela and relationships uh, have ended. I mean, myself, as I've said before on my podcast and my YouTube channel, I decided to play a kind of low profile. I was determined that the issue wouldn't come between my friends and family. I was honest in my opinions, but not dogmatic, dogmatic, sorry, and respectful of other people's really. Um, hopefully that's kind of like a more mature approach than um, in, in previous years. Of course, if someone you know, came at me aggressively. I never really experienced that. I would defend myself. I wouldn't shun away from speaking the truth as I see it. Uh, but I kind of learnt through experience that you can't really force your truth upon other people, so to speak. It really, it really just uh, antagonizes antagonizes them. So it can be, uh, it can be really uh, sort of uh, counterproductive. Um, so yeah. Covid has demonstrated clearly uh, that once a person, uh, the more sorry a person is invested in the system, 
the harder it is for them to seek the truth, to speak the truth. And then that's why we saw so many public figures, movie stars, musicians, sports, sports stars, the useful idiots. They went along with it all because um, they're well rewarded financially and they don't have to suffer for the truth, if you think about it. They can just trumpet the party line. And like I was saying, they can be well rewarded for it. So that's why you do see a lot of public figures and you often think, well, why is it? Why is it that they, they say such stupid, obvious things, obvious lies? Why, why are so many of them just useful idiots? Well, basically, it's because they don't have, they don't have to suffer for the truth. They're, they're, um, they're, they're, they're brought and paid off. So they don't ever have to go on that kind of torturous journey that many of us find ourselves on, as I was saying before, this sort of alchemical process of purif purification. And of course, as lies and falsehoods continue to permeate in all sections of society, speaking truth is becoming more and more of rebellious uh, action. You know, as was um, as was demonstrated in uh, Orwell's no novel nineteen eighty four, and people eventually, you know, were sort of uh, imprisoned for speaking the truth. But I would argue that we really can't sort of hide away. Or shy away. We we do need to be spiritual, sorry, warriors, and 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 speak our truth, no matter no matter what the cost. Especially when it would be a lot easier to keep our mouth closed. Um, the problem is, uh, you know, if we do if we do shut ourselves down, and uh, that does, um, you know, and we are quite weak and passive. That does allow the lies to permeate even more within our world. I'll give you just a s small example of how people are s uh, really brainwashed into believing nonsense and how the truth is being hidden. Uh, last summer I was doing some contract work at the government, uh, the ONS, which is the Government Civil Service Department, and uh, working on the census. UK 2021 census and um, as part of our downtime because it's a government department of course we were being brainwashed by these modules that we had to do on cl climate change diversity and all that kind of stuff and uh, we had to have a discussion about the whole trans issue and all the rest of it and I said to this group of people my work colleagues I said you can't change your sex I said it's not possible to which there was shock and outrage. They looked at me, you know, like I just said that, um, you know, I'm going to go and shoot the Queen or something, you know. Um, they were absolutely outraged. And uh, I, you know, made my case that whilst people may be able to change their bits, cut off bits, have new bits added, um, the brain, the physiological dimension of the brain if you're a man or a woman when you transition to the opposite sex that can't change of course you can have drugs to help that process but ultimately a, a man and a woman's brain are, are very different and yeah I was I was told that you know that I'm a uh, disrespectful for saying that and I didn't say it in a in an aggressive way I just you know was speaking my truth so to speak and uh, yeah it was interesting I was really quite shocked I wasn't being provocative um, in, in any way and I think one issue that can happen if we do shut ourselves down if we do censor ourselves is that we become divided within our own being and we can 
can diminish our consciousness and we can lose our spark and dynamism because in some sense we are colluding with the spread of evil if we go along with this um, this uh, kind of subversion of everything we know to be true, everything we know to be good within society, because that's um, that's uh, that's really what we're fighting for right now. It's really getting to a, a critical juncture. Not that I need, not that I mean to spread doom, poor. Of course, I never mean to do that. But myself, I do have a bit of a reputation for being outspoken. But at the same time. As you can hear in the tone of my voice, I don't have a particularly uh, sort of manly alpha male type. I'm quite a quiet person by my nature, so it's a strange paradox. And I think that's why when I do speak out, uh, in this instance when I was working at the ONS, I think people, they're kind of quite shocked uh, when I say things and I don't mince, mince my words. And... Uh, I think they don't expect it from someone who's quite uh, who's quite mild-mannered, really. Maybe that's the kind of uh, my Italian roots coming out. I don't know. Maybe it's an age thing now. I've recently hit fifty, and perhaps um, perhaps I don't <laughs> perhaps I don't care anymore if I offend people. But I deliberate. I don't deliberately do. I should say. So just moving on now uh, in this particular episode, what I want to look at is uh, another aspect. Uh, oh, another dimension to this idea, this axiom of you have to suffer for the truth, is uh, we've all heard of um, insiders or whistleblowers, perhaps within uh, government organisations or quangos, or in, in the corporate sector, um, people who place themselves at great risk by revealing truths such as corporate and government criminal actions. And um, within mainstream germ journalism, up until I think around about the 1990s, uh, many journalists, that, that's what they were prepared to do, was uh, speak truth to power, so to speak. Um, I think there are still some genuine journalists who value speaking truth at all costs. And like we know, they paid the uh, ultimate price uh, for speaking the truth and going against things like uh, the COVID agenda. But unfortunately now, virtually all mainstream journalists are totally compromised, sorry, and they have nothing uh, nothing worthy to say at all. They're nothing more than uh, government spokespeople, uh, just reading the latest uh, media uh, output, really. But there are still a few shining lights, people like the Australian journalist John Pilger, who's been a, peak, a beacon of truth when it comes to speaking the truth for the people of Palestine and many other minority groups in the world, including the Aborigines in Australia and the disgraceful treatment of the Palestinians by the Israeli government and the Aborigines in Australia by the Australian government. He's really... He's put his head above the parapet, but unfortunately, that's a, a dying uh, breed uh, in in the in the modern era. Just a little bit of a cultural reference that I like to throw in. A good example of um, someone who was prepared to suffer for the truth and almost pay the ultimate price. Um, 
is exemplified in the movie uh, Dark Waters, which is about the DuPont scandal. And the main character there, he's a, a journalist and he investigates um, a farm in America where where uh, the livestock and the farmer himself are being poisoned because a leak from the, of a leak from the from the plant, and he takes up this farmer's case uh, and he prepares a case in court, and he literally his whole life, uh, all aspects of his life, uh, is devoted to, to fighting this case and, and building the case. He literally goes out of his mind, and it threatens you know his marriage and. All aspects of his life so I won't re reveal too much about the film uh, I don't want to be a spoiler uh, obviously but yeah the film Dark Waters check it out this idea of um, suffering for the truth and real journalism and research and, 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 and what it actually um, what it actually involves uh, is, uh, is worth viewing so I'm just going to go on now to this uh, the notion of um, this concept of a pseudo-truth and identity politics or the illusion of a truth because um, I think one of the main reasons why we've seen the march and the rise of identity politics within the kind of framework of Marxist postmodernist sort of ideology is because it sort of creates a uh, the idea of a what I describe as a, a fake sense of empowerment or liberation, because that's what we're all looking for, isn't it? We're all looking to be empowered. But with identity politics or wokeism, if you uh, prefer, it, it, um, the control system or the powers that be, if you prefer, they know that historically, going back through the annuals of time, it's always been young people who have uh, embodied that revolutionary zeal um, because they, they're young and they're idealistic and they have the energy and they want to change the world. You go back to the 60s and the US campuses and the campuses in France and other places, um, that's where that kind of uh, revolutionary zeal um, came from. It, it came from the youth. Now, of course... This has always been a huge problem for the ruling powers, um, uh, you know, because ultimately that could be that could be the seed of a revolution that, that unseats them from their power base. So, with identity politics and uh, wokeism, it's a very it's a very uh, clever mechanism, as I was saying, to to disempower them by thinking that they are at the head of a genuine revolution, and it's a very old Bolshevik tactic as was spoken about uh, by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his uh, seminal book, The Gulag Archipelago, or The Archipelago Gulag, I should say, get it right, Ant. And also, if you check out the work of the former KGB agent who defected to the West, Yuri Bezmenov, uh, he talks about the mechanism by which Western societies, really from the 70s and 80s, have been destroyed within by this Marxist ideology. And he talks about the process of demoralization, which, if you think about it, demoralization is what we're living through right now. And this is this outlawing of truth. Uh, this is this process of where everything is.
being subverted. As I was saying at the beginning, everything, everything we know to be good, noble and true and family values and all those sorts of things are being, um, are being subverted. So um, the thing also is that with this movement, identity politics or social justice, social justice warriors, they can pretend to themselves that they are promoting truth and um, whilst they're um, speaking or pushing their mindless <laughs> political slogans. And yeah, as I say, it is a very, very crafty psychological trick, this fake sense of empowerment and creation of a pseudo-political identity because uh, in the midst of all of that, they can hide their true identity below this sort of uh, fake revolution. And what I mean by their, you know, their fake identity, well, hi, sorry, I should say the hiding of their true identity, that would be where a lot of the pain and trauma is, which we all know, all of us are guilty of wanting to hide uh, the, our pain and trauma. But of course, if we're going to, um, if we're going to reveal or discover our true identity and the truth, we need to dive right deep. We need to dive deeply into those um, less than savoury uh, uh, aspects of ourselves. So now I'm going to talk about something that's a little bit controversial. Uh, forgive me here. I don't mean to, uh, what's the word, trigger anyone, which is an apt word when you're talking about the whole woke thing. But I want to talk about the kind of woke, an aspect of woke or uh, progressive politics in terms of um, how it protects people, obviously normally younger people, um, from, excuse me, from not having to suffer from discovering truth, how it protects them from that sort of painful, very archetypal journey, really, that we need to go on to discover the truth about ourselves and the external world. So I'm going to talk about this idea of the plus size movement, which obviously you've probably seen the front, the front cover of magazines, fashion magazines, uh, like Cosmo and and the like, and they're now featuring larger sized women. You've also got like adverts here in the UK for a company called Dove, which produces soap, and you have um, plus size uh, models uh, on there. Uh, my phrase. That's uh, not my phrase. That's the phrase that's being used. So it does appear to be about freedom and personal expression. And that, you know, women of all sizes now, in this instance, larger sizes, plus sizes, are able to um, to express themselves and uh, to, to um, you know, not hide themselves away, which is, is a good thing, isn't it, on the surface at, le at least. But I believe there is, uh, this is an example of how we can lie to ourselves about uh, an uncomfortable truth in terms of, self-worth and our physical bodies because although we do live in a post-feminist world where women um, are no longer judged on their physical looks to the degree that they once were once were once once were and um, they're no longer you know their value is um, perceived to be more than just um, their physical attractiveness uh, although, of course, in some regard, this still 
does ring true when you think of all these uh, the women on TikTok and Instagram who you know who inject their lips or ha who um, use certain type of makeup and all the rest of it and we know that there's also quite a lot of self-harm within the younger uh, female age group as well so there's this kind of like a paradox because on the one hand women are becoming more accepted uh, in spite of their looks um, but on the other hand women are we can't deny that women are still being objectified objectified so on the surface at least people would say well it's good that we've got the rise of this plus size movement because it means that women can be accepted it means that women uh, are, no, are no longer objectified to the degree that they once were um, so in this context uh, a new movement arrives that offers women liberation they can celebrate their bodies what, whatever their shape or size or whatever shape or size of their bodies and who wouldn't support such a movement because uh, on the surface it appears like a real sign of progress and advancement for for women however one needs to be careful excuse the plane overhead to be careful to make a distinction between a woman with a large a larger size say a larger frame or who is uh, obese now, i think it's right that we should it's right that no one should be judged on the basis none of us whether male or female uh, should be judged on our physical looks but is it healthy for uh, clinically obese women or anyone or men as well uh, or chronically overweight uh, men or women to be indulged and celebrated because ultimately it doesn't help them emotionally or psychologically uh, because they don't get to face up to the issue in their life that might be causing the problem leading to obesity or, chronic, or being chronically overweight. Um, we might not like it really we might not we might not like to admit this <laughs> that even in a in a kind of post feminist world in the main men still do young men do find slim women more attractive because it is associated with health vitality and fertility now we know that obviously this is a cultural driven phenomena a culturally driven phenomena because it wasn't that many centuries ago the larger size women and what we would describe as obese women were deemed to be more alluring, voluptuous and uh, attractive. So that is a culturally driven thing. Uh, I totally agree with that. But is it healthy for women who, you know, who find themselves in the plus in, in the plus size movement if all they do is hang out with uh, women with the same kind of uh, attitude? Uh, because in that kind of environment, they never have to road test their version of truth. So it was, some might say it does encourage a, dam a damaging kind of self-delusion um, that having a healthy body is, is, not, is not important, is not a priority. But what would happen, say, if they went out and hit the bars and the clubs, you know, and road tested uh, this particular truth, I think they'd find out that they wouldn't get as much attention from men as uh, as the slim women. Now, I'm not saying that this is right. I'm not saying this is wrong, but I'm just saying that if you're not prepared to uh, suffer for the truth, you can live in a, a comforting delusion. This is a uh, this is um, unfortunately, you know, this is an example of that. 
Do we live in a fattest society? Of course we do. Of course we do. Uh, but obesity is more and more of a problem, certainly here in the UK and across um, and across a lot of the Western world uh, because of diet and, and other issues. So, you know, we need to be we need to be careful that um, people's uh, issues aren't being indulged. And I think this is uh, this is partly what's happening here with the whole plus size movement. I mean, overall, it might help some women. But we all know um, within our own lives, if there's something that we're unconscious of, whatever it might be, if that unconsciousness or pattern of behavior is not looked at and we don't explore it, then, then we're, not being, um, we're, not, uh, we're not being helped, really, are we? So again, this comes back to a notion of truth um, versus, versus delusion. So some of these women... Unfortunately, they will be deluding themselves, but you know that is um, that is their right, and I think ultimately the people that are pushing the plus size movement within the context of progressive leftist ideas, they they don't care about women at all. This is ultimately they are wanting to increase sales by um, you know by uh, appearing to be noble, by appearing to, um, you know, care about uh, sort of thing. I mean, some people might say this is also about, as a society, forcing people to accept overweight women, you know. But I don't think that's what it is. I think what we're really talking about here is a, is a health issue. And like I was just saying, it should be about addressing, addressing the deeper issues because we will never grow or develop unless we're prepared to suffer for the truth we only learn the hard way um, through suffering really i just want to um just move on now to this concept or issue of uh which again sits at the heart of identity politics that's the notion of well it's my truth <laughs> you've probably heard this in your own uh, in your own life, it's my truth versus your truth, and we've all heard this statement thrown at us when we share information that runs counter to established mainstream narratives. And obviously, it's really kind of like a meaningless phrase, and I think it's intellectually a little bit lazy, and it can be used to promote blatant lies and absurdities related to government actions and corporate crime. Because in a lot of instances when people say my truth, what they actually might mean is they mean is opinions, belief systems or ideologies that can't be um, equated to truth. And I think it deliberately creates a false impression that we can create our own truth and then that no one else can uh, question us on that basis. And I think that's how the system protects itself from investigation or criticism. I think overall there is an, ob there is an objective truth, and we can come to that through our own truths, but they must be you know, continually, uh, continually tested, as, I, as, as I've just been talking about. We can't just claim truth as our opinion or our perspective or through following um, a particular uh, ideology and it can be disturbing because any any individual or group can 
claim to have truth on their on their side and this leads to inflammatory claims being made as we know in relationship to issues around race gender and sexuality and we're led to believe that this process somehow gives a voice to minority groups who are claimed to be exploited by the system it's obviously extremely appealing to emotionally disturbed individuals individuals who are seeking a way to heal their inner pain inner pain and they do that by just blaming the system by blaming patriarch patriarchy or um institutional white uh, sorry institutional racism or white supremacy uh, etc and uh, in relationship to covid this has demonstrated that people this idea of uh, my truth versus your truth <laughs> this is illustrated that people would um, rather be right and support the latest thing they're not really concerned if their position is true or false all that matters is being right and even if uh, it's obvious even if they're pushing obvious absurdities it's even if it's staring them right in the in the in the face like i remember we had a, a covid protocol or rule that meant um, i think this was when the authorities were you know just taking some sort of weird psychosexual high or something from when they were gaslighting this was when we had the rule in public places like restaurants cafes and bars uh, whereby you had to wear a mask when you entered the, the the premise and you had to wear the mask from the door to the table say in a restaurant or cafe and then you you were able to to take it off when you were you were eating but then you had to put it on when you walked to the toilet and then you could take it off when you were sat when you were sat back down, you know, eating your meal or drinking your coffee or whatever. And, um, yeah, I think that's just an example, again, of where people will not examine, um, you know, what they think is the truth by uh, following the, the, latest, the latest thing, really. And, uh, but why is that? Uh, it's, really, I think it's, idea of following the latest thing is so we never have to concern ourselves with discovering the truth because such considerations are, are always considerations of what is truth are considered outdated and meaningless in this era of moral relativism but I think everyone in their hearts know that this really is a horrible um, self-deception and you hear people say things like, well, we all lie anyway, so what's the point about concerning ourselves with the bigger truths in and of the world? And then, of course, with um, my truth versus your truth, we get lost in um, circular arguments. And in those instances, I just think it's, <laughs> it's not really worth engaging with people. If you feel like you have to defend your truth against someone else, then in a, in a sense you've kind of like already lost to be honest so at that point it's probably good it's probably good to, to just disengage from the situation or the person say say what needs to be said like i said earlier don't shy away but 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 don't then you know get in, get involved in sort of like a game of ego tower defense where you need to defend your uh, defend your stance against the, against theirs kind of thing 
Anyway, in the next part of this episode, uh, I just want to talk about in terms of looking at are we living in a post-truth world. Um, it's all the characteristics of individuals, hopefully, <laughs> like ourselves, who who do value truth. Because I think we are we are kind of like, uh, I'm not saying an elite band of people, but we are very different from the norm. And I'm just going to look at what kind of characteristics we have. And I think we do tend to more likely to have had uh, sort of traumatic childhoods and we struggle to integrate into mainstream society. And the grind of the nine to five, really, we've, from day one, you know, when we left college or university or school or whatever, um, we find it soul-destroying to to um, to sort of uh, normalise ourselves to the nine to five. And we do land up living the archetype of the ar- the archetype of the outsider, as written about in uh, Colin Wilson's book by the same ni- name, The Outsider. We have difficulty, and we have difficulty being in disharmonious in environments. Excuse, excuse me. And we find it difficult to bear dishonourable behaviours and things like conflict and gossip. And uh, we often find that we're not valued within uh, mainstream societies, and we're often labelled as neurotic, troublemakers, dreamers, or overly sensitive. And we can often struggle to deal with the insanity of, of the world and we can't just turn away, we can't just be less sensitive. And also, the normal means of sedation simply don't work, where a lot of normies, you know, obsessed with culture and sports and celebrities and holidaying and things like that. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but they they tend to kind of sedate them, I mean they don't really have that desire or that quest to, to seek truth. But uh, for the likes of us, we really, we have no choice but to plough our own follow. We simply can't follow the herd. And even in, in the past, if we followed the past of leaf, leaf, least resistance, sorry to say, that just feels like a death to us, like a soul death. And we constantly seek a higher meaning and more of an intense purpose to life or a mission or a higher meaning beyond mere material concerns. Perhaps you can recognise some of these characteristics in yourself and other people that you know. It isn't an easy path, as I was saying, to choose because we live in a world that encourages us every turn to reject the importance of living a truthful life at any cost. And uh, as we know... um, you know, one of the uh, the main issues of understanding of who and what we are is is pulling away or wrenching away of of the mask or the fake personality. And I think for those of us who do seek to live a life outside of the consensus reality, our mask or fake personality is is a lot less well defined and. We are aware of those around us, friends and family, friends and acquaintances, who have a much more well-defined mask or fake fake personality. And I find that in early life we tend to blame ourselves for not successfully integrating within society. But I found as I've grown grown more mature, I've come to the understanding that whilst I still have issues, like anyone, fact that I've been unable to adjust 
to a profoundly sick society is not necessarily due to some sort of inherent flaw in my personality. And but it isn't a path that many people choose uh, because it does play us at odds with society, as I said at the beginning of this particular section. We do, uh, we do live the life of um, the, the outsider because we know, and because we know um, of this, we know what kind of trajectory we're on, we tend to reject um, specialisms, you know, employment specialisms, career specialisms, because they, these often do land up being a trap. The more you go down a particular niche or particular niche, I should say, as you say in America and Canada, I believe, um, you do become a, a more of a prisoner of the system because you can't see out the confines of your specialism. That's not to say you don't um, you don't great gain a great deal of knowledge, knowledge, but it is just within that particular niche, and that means that any kind of information that goes outside of that. Um, you literally you can't even you can't even um, you can't even countenance it because you're far too uh, invested you've placed too much investment in the system we've seen this during covid with government scientists you know they're just too invested in the mainstream narrative and and their fake science i should say so um you know we need to uh, we need to give ourselves a pat on the back <laughs> because I suspect that many of us have, have chosen the path of least resistance and you know it really isn't easy because uh, it does it does put us in conflict with the world and, and those around us but at least when we can name it and at least when we can put it within the context of it being if you think of um Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey it is very much an an archetypal journey where we battle the demons and we uh, but eventually we discover the boon we discover the jewels we discover you know the you know the elixir of life and then we can return to to society and and, and we can share what we what we've learnt what we've learnt about ourselves and the wisdom that we have gained and that for me is you know, partly what we're here to do. So just moving on now, and this is the last uh, section that I'm going to cover in this part one episode of Are We Living in a Post-Truth World? And it's just another way in which um, truth is protected, or how people can delude themselves and think that they are living in truth. And this is this concept of um, how how people... They confuse this idea of being nice. They confuse it with being a good person or being goodness. So they will do nice acts or they will say on the surface, well, I'm a nice person. And they will you know, pretend to be sort of a noble. Well, I'm good and virtuous because I'm a nice person. So that must mean that they're a religious person. <laughs> They'd say that they have God on their side. By definition, that would mean, you know, that they are. Uh, they have truth um, on their side and therefore, um, by extension, moral moral integrity. But this often isn't the case. And, you know, it, it, is, it can be that niceness is just a front. And again, this forms part of the whole kind of wokeism 
and identity politics and wokeism and this idea of projecting this sense of niceness like corporations do where they uh, will have a lot of minority groups in their adverts because they're trying to say that, hey, we're a nice corporation and we value and respect the rights of minority groups. And as we know, that's got nothing to do with projecting a sense of goodness or moral integrity and it has everything to do with uh, pushing a sense of uh, fakeness really and a sense of fake goodness and just an example of this kind of fatuitousness of if that's a word I think it might be or the fakeness of thinking that uh, someone who's nice is necessarily, by extension, a good uh, person who lives in truth. An archetypal uh, good example of this is the whole idea of the nice guy in dating and relationships, whereby he hides his true in- intentions behind the veneer of niceness. Whereas a truly good and morally virtuous uh, guy, say, in the realm of dating relationships, often isn't necessarily uh, a nice person in the traditional sense because they will speak their truth that some people might offensive might find offensive in that they would come out quite clearly and say that they find in this case we're talking about heterosexuals in this case that they find uh, a particular woman um, attractive and yes they want to have sex with her and they come out and they will state this and they won't hide behind a kind of, you know, a mask of um, niceness. And in this sense, niceness can equate to a sense of moral cowardice or moral cowardice, I should say. And it's a way to hide one's true in- intentions behind a pleasant or pleasing um, veneer. And, you know, this is, this is the epitome of virtue signaling in that it's about presentation or a show of emotions rather than expressing the truth which is often very brutal as we know uh, because we, we we live in a world of delusions and another example is the situation in Ukraine whereby we have uh, this notion of telescopic philanthropy which means that people uh, they're not interested in, you know, helping uh, charities that um, assist local charities in the area. They're more interested in helping people in this instance uh, who might be victims of the war or conflict in the Ukraine. And But they don't understand. In a lot of instances, these people are actually making things worse. And then they're not actually helping because they are unaware they are unaware that their niceness and their virtue signaling is actually promoting an idea that is untrue about um, the Ukraine war or the conflict in the Ukraine. And that is that um, Putin and Russia are the bad guys. And uh, they're unaware that since 2014, um, the Ukrainian military has been shelling the Donetsk region. And they've killed 14,000 people, unfortunately. Now, I'm not saying that people, Ukrainian civilians dying since the military operation began in February is is a good thing. Of course, I'm not saying that. It's always wrong when civilians died. But these, uh, but these individuals who fall foul of telescopic philanthropy and their 
they're not interested in interested in local charities and they're more interested in this sort of turbocharged virtue signaling by helping Ukrainian refugees. They are totally unaware of this broader concept of how Ukrainians in the Donetsk region, in the breakaway region, have been suffering since 2014. So where, where, where were they during that period? They were nowhere because the mainstream media was not pointing out their plight um, because uh, they were not being informed of it through the mainstream media, through, through the news channel. So again, this is an example of how people who, on the surface at least, they feel that they're nice, you know, and they feel like they're being good people, they're being morally virtuous, and by extension they feel like, you know, they've got truth on their side. But that isn't the case. They're being, they're being played by the system, who does not give a shit about Ukrainian civilians. Because where were they? They did not care about 14,000 civilians being shelled in the Donetsk region, shelled, slaughtered and killed. So again, you know, people have to be careful when they, uh, when they feel like they have um, truth on their side and where actually, because of their, uh, their niceness and because they're confusing it with goodness, they're being played by the system. So that's just something else. For, for you know you to become aware of when we see all these uh, charities that have exploded since, since the Ukraine conflict. Of course, this is something more of us here in the UK and in Europe. It probably doesn't touch you as much in the United States because there isn't so much focus upon it. So anyway, I think I'll draw this particular, this part one, uh, where I've posed a question. Uh, are we living in a post-truth world to a conclusion now? So thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope you've uh, I hope you've um, got managed to get something from this particular conversation today. Um, part two will be coming out soon, uh, hopefully in the next few days. Technology allowing. I seem to be recently. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if Mercury is in retrograde, but I seem to be having a lot of. Uh, internet on just techno technology uh gremlin gremlins problems related everything just seems to be <laughs> breaking i don't know if you're experiencing the same problem so anyway thank you all for your time uh, as always uh, i really do appreciate it and if you could share this particular episode uh share it with your friends and family and also on your own social media platforms uh yeah i would i would appreciate that greatly helps to get my work out there so um, I'll speak to you all again uh, very soon. Bye-bye for now.